0: Alright, I have the privilege and the honor of introducing Drew, and if there's ever a time that you read about someone, I don't, I don't know you personally, Drew, but if there's ever a time that you read about someone or about the things that they've, they've written, and you get excited, well, this was the case for me. So I actually have a few notes that I'd like to share with you about Drew, and I think it's going to be a challenging morning for us. Based on what I have read about him and and just some of the different conversations in leading up to this. So, a few things about him. He's an author, a professor, an activist. And his most recent book is called The Trouble I've Seen Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. And it's an analysis of racial injustice in the 21st century. Uh, providing a call to action for Christians in the Jesus way. And one of the things that I loved reading about him is that he really believes that Jesus has things to say that are for the church and things that are against the church to save itself from westernized Christianity. Is that challenging? And Yeah, that's, it's challenging and exciting to, to think about that. People have said that it's one of the best books that they encountered on race and the Christian faith. Another person said that this is one of the brightest and best young theologians in the country, in the States. An unforgettable... What was that? Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll take you to. An unforgettable read that deserves the church's full attention and considered action. He's a professor in theology in the Bible and religion department at Messiah College. He has a PhD in theology and ethics from the Lutheran Theological Seminary. And I love this. He sees his current role as a theology professor as an extension of his ministry vocation that began with pastoring for 10 years. I love that. Another place it said was he's committed to doing public theology, theology in the public space. He's an activist. He spent, like I said, 10 years pastoring in Harrisburg and Philadelphia. He he spent time working for an inner-city after-school program for black and brown middle school boys. He's delivered lectures, and he's led anti-racism workshops. He's collaborated with faith-based organizers in his neighborhood, and recently was the recipient of the BCM Peace's 2017 Peacemaker Award for his local and national work. If you'd like to follow his writing, he has a blog called Taking Jesus Seriously, which is hosted at the Christian Century. You're welcome to look at that blog after he speaks, (laughs) not during it. And also his family, his wife Renee and his three boys Micah, Dietrich and Vincent live in Harrisburg. So can we give a humongous welcome to Drew for coming and speaking here? He's going to get up on the stage in just a moment, but let's pray for him. If you don't mind extending your hands for him, and it's going to be as well just for ourselves too, whatever the, the Spirit has for us this morning. But Lord, we do extend our hand in your name to Drew. Thank you for this man. Thank you for all that you have deposited in him through his experience, through his study, through the wisdom that comes from your Spirit. Thank you for all that you have to share with us through him. And Lord, we ask that you would speak. Maybe even more importantly, that we would hear. And we open our hearts and our minds wherever you want to, to shift or to shake or to challenge or to convict us. We welcome, we welcome you to be who you are. In the name of Christ, amen.
1: Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you all this morning um, and to be here for the week. I really, truly can say that I feel like I've been welcomed in as a part of the Vineyard family. Um, I've I've just felt that welcome. Um, I understood, you know, when I was telling people, yeah, I'm going to this um, national gathering. And then, you know, everyone from the Vineyard would say, you know, we're a family. And I, now I understand what, what, what was meant by that. Um, family. Um, And so I really appreciate that. I appreciate um, the reception, the love, the prayer, um, and just the relationships that I'm getting to build as I'm connecting with you all. And so I'm just grateful for all of that. And, you know, um, David joked about, you know, maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll keep them or something, whatever you said, right? I was like, well, if things get any worse in the U.S., you might, you know, see me knocking. So I'll try to behave myself a little bit. Um, now you, you've you invited in, so sometimes I, I call myself an Um and, and that basically means um, I w- I've, the traditions that shape me are the black church in the U.S. and also the Anabaptist church in the U.S., uh, two traditions that are kind of tend to be a little bit subversive, and so it's a little bit of double trouble that you've invited up to the stage this morning. But um, again, I'm just grateful to be here with you all and to be reflecting on um, the kingdom of God and the theme, right? When the church seeks first the kingdom of God, it is such an important theme for us to think about um, and for us to reflect on and for us to grow in and to be challenged and, and really ultimately for God to be breaking us, break, breaking us open to the new thing that God wants to do. Uh, recently, my wife, Renee, who we've, in fact, we're just celebrating um, this summer, our 10 year anniversary, um, she recently, thank you, it's, it's exciting. Um, she recently um, has been like dropping like, really tough theological questions for me. Um, I guess because I'm a professor, I'm supposed to be able to like answer all kinds of like, you know, all her, her puzzling mysteries that she's kind of wrestling with. And so recently she's been really struggling with just um, some of the uh, suffering that we see going on both among people that we know, and as well as just crazy stuff going on in our society. And her question is, where is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this? Is God just a passive presence? Is God not able to intervene in the most severe cases of injustice and oppression? Can all God do is just comfort us in the midst of it? She's looking out, she's watching things unfold real time, people in pain and suffering, struggling through, and she wasn't legitimately, right? My my wife is not like just a philosophizer just for the fun of it, she's a very practical person. Where is God in all of this? What is God up to? What do we place our faith in? What does this mean for us, right? If I were to add my own twist. What does this mean for the church to be thinking about God's action or in her question, possible inaction? Hopefully, we can wrestle with a little bit of that question also as we think about what it means for the church to seek first the kingdom of God. Now, when we think about, you know, the kingdom of God, usually we think about... Uh, Jesus and his teachings on the kingdom of God and the kind of radical way that he embodies the reign of God, um, you know, God's future for us breaking into the present world and God embodying that in the birth, life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in some ways, that is the most important place for us to be looking and thinking about what it means to um, think about, to understand and see the kingdom of God. But there really is a much longer history of the kind of idea of the kingdom of God, the reign of God that really runs throughout the whole entire biblical story. From the very beginning, I mean, if you think about in Genesis, right, you see uh, God's reign over creation. Um, But then shortly after that, humanity goes into exile from God's presence after seeking to be like God right, taking on this idolatrous pursuit um, that really distorted the image of God in us. Uh, a little after that, we see the Tower of Babel, um, which symbolizes, really, Babylon, right? I mean, that's really what is going on there, and, and, and it helps us recognize all of the imperial projects and desires that try to reach up to the sky high, um, again, taking on a place which solely belongs to God. In the Exodus, we see God reveal God's self as Yahweh first to enslaved Hebrews who are enjoying 400 years of oppression. And God delivers them and creates for God's self a covenant people who are set aside to be a blessing to the nations. They are to be a visible counter witness to the nations, right, of, of what God actually desires for humanity. Uh, we see this kind of special covenantal relationship really expressed in De- Deuteronomy 6:4, and often called the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one, right? And not just one in the sense of being monotheistic, but that uh, God has no peers, no equals, was also implied in that phrase as well. Um, This gets fleshed out in the book of Judges. We see that that the 12 tribes actually begin to literally uh, form these radical communities under the reign of God in which there is no king. No king at all, Uh, but periodically outside nations and forces would try to oppress and dominate them and so temporarily they would rise up a judge, right? This, this temporary deliverer who would help, God would use to help deliver them to bring them back into the state and then they would go right back into this kind of theocratic governing within God's reign. In 1 Samuel 8, however, we see and we begin to see a turn uh, the people begin to ask the prophet Samuel to anoint them, um, to anoint a king for them because they want to be like other nations. Samuel warns them that a king will oppress and exploit them. Nonetheless, they want to be like all the other nations and so they swap their trust and faith in God and God's reign for this monarchy. And so this this idea of a Messiah actually begins really with David and and Saul, Saul and David, uh, this anointed king, right? Um, They're like the judges in that they are also expected to protect the people from oppressive nations, but unlike the judges, they're expected to be a permanent reality, taking on that place of overseeing uh, God's people. Of course, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia still dominate them. That doesn't really stop because they have a king. In response to what grows into ongoing uh, idolatry and injustice among God's people, God calls forth prophets. Out of intimate encounters with God, these prophets speak, and they condemn the idolatry and the injustice of the people, and and call people back into repentance, repentance that is sending them back to the to a life in the reign of God, where they can flourish with one another and experience God shalom. I mean, think about um, you know a, uh, Isaiah 58, right? Where on one hand you have the strong condemnation of the of the injustice and exploitation that's going on. God's saying, I don't even want your worship and your are fasting right now because you're, you're not treating your neighbors right. And at the same time, it's pointing them towards a vision of what could be, right? Of what God's dream for them actually is, which is that they, a new dawn would birth, right? Um, and that shalom, uh, that they would experience wholeness be- before God and their neighbors. The prophets, you know, they didn't align themselves with the social order. They they had a prophetic imagination that could perceive a, a whole other way of life that was possible for society and their people. I often say that today we often have more chaplains of the empire than prophets calling people back into repentance and towards the kingdom of God. Early Christians, after all of this, in the context of Rome, um, you know, Roman Empire is now ruling over the Jews. Their Caesar is referred to as son of God, literally believed and, and worshipped patriotically through the Roman cults as a divine figure, right? Uh, Caesar. Um, He's, he's, he's considered and called patros over the empire, the father of us all, right? Caesar is expected to be treated and responded to as though Caesar is Lord. Everybody ought to resp- respond and subject themselves and live their entire lives according to the reality that Caesar and everything falls down and flows out of that. Any Jew, any devout Jew, whether they were Christian or not, uh, at this time would have understood that this was a blasphemous claim that threatened the truth of God's reign. Early Christians in particular articulated clearly that the God of Abraham is our father, that Jesus is the son of God, and that he, Jesus, is Lord. And, And they would say Jesus is Lord defiantly and radically, and when they said that, it meant that Caesar is not. They understood that they were called to surrender their lives in every area of their life to the reign of God. I want to suggest this morning that the kingdom of God is present wherever the Messiah reigns on earth as in heaven. That Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. It's it's hard though, I mean, one of the things I wanna push, you know, I was, there's so much that we could talk about when you think about the kingdom of God. There's just so, it's like a, uh, a, almost like a diamond with all the different facets and sides and dimensions. And so we could spend, you know, all year just talking about different angles and I'm sure we'll get several. But, you know, one of the things that, um, that I think we often don't want to touch sometimes as the church is the political side of the, of the kingdom of God. We don't want to talk about the political side of the kingdom of God. I remember um, meeting, this was just just a few weeks ago, I met with some um, pastors from my area. Um, They wanted to just connect and kind of uh, hear about some of the work that we were doing. Me and uh, our music director was was there and then um, sitting with the two pastors from their church. And and so they began telling us about how relevant and edgy and experimental they were as a church and they were just talking about you know, how they reach and they're engaging um, people who normally would not enter into the church at all and just all the different ways that they're doing it and willing to take risks, they said, as a church to do things that most traditional churches wouldn't do. So I was like, okay, that's cool. So then I, I told them some of the work that we were doing in terms of this group called Free Together, which is really about creating a relational network for Christian leaders to gather together for formation and renewal, to understand who we are and why we do the work of justice, and then also then to actually do that work, to uh, partner with organizations in our community to actually do that work. So the free actually stands for formation, renewal, and ecclesial engagements, all right? And so we, we, we connect with churches in that way. And so I was explaining some of the challenges in Harrisburg that everybody knows that Harrisburg is just extremely an unjust and inequitable city in just so many ways. Um, and everybody knows it. It's not really a secret. Um, and so I was challenging, you know, about, you know, some of the ways that we as the church can speak truth to the powers that be in our society um, and call things that are wrong, wrong, immoral, ungodly, displeasing, right? Well, it was interesting that once I started talking about it, he was like, yeah, I mean, that all sounds great, but, but it, you know, it sounds like it, it might just be, sound a little too political for our church. So I was like, aren't you guys the ones that are supposed to be the relevant, risky, experimental, you know? And so, but it was interesting. I understood why they said that initially, and so I had to unpack a little bit. Um, but, but there's uh, 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 sometimes a lack of awareness to the political meaning of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Sometimes we, we we're ready to take on the spiritual implications of it, but we want to cut the gospel in half and not really wrestle with the fact that it actually involves all areas of our lives every area of our life and so I, I began to ask some questions And I said well, like when you hear me say political are you hearing partisanship right because that's usually a lot of times what people mean when they say you know they don't want to be political they don't want to get co-opted by a political party which I'd say amen right you know you know, I don't follow, in the US, it's, you know, donkey and a lamb are the, I mean, donkey and the elephants elephant are the uh, symbols, right? And so I say, I don't follow a donkey or an elephant, I follow the lamb that was slain, right? Um, and so, so, you know, the church should never get co-opted by political parties and sociological ideologies that are not, have nothing to do with the reign of God. Um, but, but what I explained was that, you know, there's a difference between partisanship and understanding like, what it, the actual word po- political actually means. It actually just has to do with the society and the organizing of society and how it impacts people, right? How it impacts the most vulnerable among us, the least, the last, and loss of our society, right? That's what we're talking about. And so I'm like, if you are gonna be obedient to the call as a Christian to love, to love your neighbors and to do justice and to show mercy, then you can't not be political. That is political. Jesus was political when he, when he fed the hungry, right? Um, and when he said that he was gonna let the oppressed go free, that's extremely political. Um, and so when we begin to realize that, you know, if we read our Bibles very carefully and understand some of the context, you understand that Jesus actually used lots of politically, not just political words, politically charged words, right? So it's maybe a little bit obvious that a word like kingdom is political. Maybe not as obvious for some of us that the word gospel is a political word, right? That it was often used for a political event. So like it might be the announcing of you know, a military battle uh, and that's uh, the gospel, you know, or, or the birth of a new emperor, right? And that, those were the kind, it was the breaking news political stories of the day um, that that was the context in which a euangelion gospel was used in Jesus' day. So why is this being used, but being reapplied to what God is doing? Um, why is it that Paul calls Jesus Lord when everybody knew that Caesar was supposed to be called Lord, right? It's taking what what. Was claimed to be Caesars and the empires, and saying no, Jesus is Lord over all of it. And we reorganize all of our lives in light of the reality that Jesus is Lord. Right? We are. Um, we are called to be distinct in how we are political. There's a particular way of life, and so we talk about the way of Jesus, right? There's a particular way in which we are political, and there's a way in which we are not political. There, There's ways in which, as followers of Jesus, we will not be co-opted by the powers that be of this world, that we will not have our message co-opted, we will not have our way of life co-opted, we will not have the community, the Christian community co-opted, because we're committed to participating in what God is doing in the world. We must uh, differentiate, again, politics from partisanship. If if one understands being political as being a chaplain to the political establishment in society, then that is a problem. But political doesn't mean partisanship, but rather, again, the polis, right? Um, Then we are all, in that sense, political because we love our neighbors and do justice. From a Christian standpoint, the kingdom of God is synonymous with the Messiah's reign. When when the Messiah came, when Jesus came, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. He was the new anointed king inaugurating um, the the kingdom of God. He said in his first, as it came up in his first uh, sermon, right, in in, in the synagogue, he comes, he preaches from Luke 4 and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, right? And that year of the Lord's favor, it's a euphemism for jubilee. And if you read the gospel of Luke very carefully, it's not even a hidden secret. It's wide open that Jesus understands the inaugurating kingdom to have a lot to do with jubilee being manifested. Not every 50 years, but constantly. Just a new way of life for a community in which forgiveness is given freely. Forgiveness not just in terms of sins, but also of debts right? And, and jubilee was about restoring lands. It was about uh, freeing the slaves. That's what jubilee was. And all of a sudden now, Jesus sees the reign of God being manifested in such a way that jubilee is now made real. And people have got to contend with that. And we see uh, two responses in the gospel. You got the rich young ruler who understands finally when Jesus says, yo, sell everything you have and follow me. And he's like, oh, that's just too much for me. And then right after that, we have the story of Zacchaeus, right? Now we water down that story, at least, I don't know, in the US we do, because we, we sing a little song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, right? <laughs> uh, and we think that the punchline, you know, is you come down here whatever and the but the song doesn't catch the punchline of the actual story it actually waters down domesticates and misdirects us from what the teaching actually says the teaching the punchline is that Zacchaeus after this radical encounter with Jesus comes out and he's like yo I'm going to redistribute all the money that I've exploited and taken from everybody else and I'm going to give it to the people that I took it from and to the poor Radical redistribution in response to the kingdom of God come, uh, encountered, intimately experiencing Jesus in his presence. We don't know what happened in that room, but he experienced and understood the implications of the gospel of the kingdom of God after meeting with Jesus. One of the things that um, we miss sometimes when we talk about um, about the kingdom of God is, you know, I believe that we have to understand that the kingdom of God, first and foremost, is about Jesus. Jesus is the seed of the kingdom. He announced that the kingdom of God was at hand, it was near, it was among them, and by that he meant it was that he was near. He was among them, right? Uh, While there are many dimensions to the kingdom of God, we should never lose sight of the fact that Jesus's presence and messianic reign are an indispensable characteristic of the reign of God. The moment we lose that, we've missed the whole thing. The early Christian origin put it like this. He he actually called Jesus the Octobasileia in Greek, right? That he is the kingdom all by himself. Right? Uh, again, without Jesus, without the Messiah's reign, there is no kingdom of God. We should never lose sight of that. The kingdom of God is present wherever the Messiah reigns. And so, if we want to uh, understand that, say it again. In his own life, Jesus embodied the new society. He embodied the new humanity. He embodied the new creation. And so if we want to get a glimpse into what the reign of God looks like, the seed of it, then we look to the birth, the life, the teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if we want to begin to participate in the reign of God, then we embody, while yielding to the spirit, the story of Jesus. The kingdom of God is present wherever the Messiah reigns on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom is a radical and subversive force in the world. It it threatens the status quo and it undermines our social order. In Jesus, in Jesus the Messiah's reign has begun. It is the kingdom of God implanted into our world, and yet not like anyone would have expected, right? The Messiah's reign is kind of like we sung this morning in Revelation 5, right? When, when um, this picture of, of John weeping, right? John weeping because nobody's worthy to open the scroll. And then he's told, look, and he looks, look for the line of uh, Judah. Right, who is victorious and triumphant. Right, Everybody knew what that meant. The victory, the strong victory of the Messiah is going to come and it's going to kick butt and we're going to wipe out all this evil and oppression. It's going to be clear and visible that God is mighty and strong. And then when he looks, he sees the slain lamb. That's the sign and the symbol of the kingdom. That slain lamb is the sign and the symbol of the kingdom. That's what the kingdom looks like. That's, uh, this is the manifestation of the mess- messianic reign. It is not the triumphant establishment of God's reign in such a way that life is perfect and peachy. It isn't a top-down and coercive overthrow of empires like humans carry out. It is power made perfect through weakness. It is God choosing the weak and the things that are considered nothing to shame the strong and the things that are considered something. It is a grassroots movement of God's new creation that has been initiated right inside of the old order. The Messiah's reign is hope forged through suffering, joy persisting through pain, life finding a way through the valley of the shadow of death. The Messiah's reign, that is the kingdom of God, was expected to to sound like trumpets blasting, right, announcing the king's return. But I'd say that it sounded a little bit more like a blues tune, right? Because the blues, kind of like the kingdom, right, it doesn't skirt and avoid suffering it actually presses into the suffering it actually presses into the pain and pushes through and persists uh through the death and the suffering until it finds hope and life on the other side and so that's the kingdom of god here on earth Uh, the messiah's reign is the kingdom of god um And we are called to seek first that kingdom, to embody the kingdom of God as signs that the Messiah has begun his reign right under the nose of the rulers and authorities of this world. And so, you know, it's one thing to talk about this kind of radical, subversive kingdom and the political ramifications of it, but in some ways to talk about the kingdom, we've got to also wrestle with what does that have to do with the church? what does it really have to do with the church? Uh, When the church seeks first the kingdom of God, it begins to manifest itself through the shared life of community. Uh, It's really about the radical reorienting of community, um, that when the church is truly manifesting the kingdom of God, everything changes and it's completely new social relations and ways of interacting and inhabiting life together. And so um, Paul said it like this, right? Uh, Galatians three twenty-eight: 28, neither uh, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, because we're all one in Christ Jesus. It's actually the flattening of social hierarchies and domination and lording over others, right? That is all crushed and destroyed inside of the, community that's actually seeking first the kingdom of God. But the sad thing is that while we can say that that's what it looks like when the church is seeking first and manifesting the kingdom of God, we can't say that the church has always or even mostly embodied and sought first and made visible the kingdom of God on earth. In fact, just a uh, a survey amateur look at church history could discourage many christians aside from getting into the actual details which is even worse i've seen them it, it doesn't take long before you see in our present day the ways in which many churches have nothing to do with the reign of god that is jesus talked about right we talk about the kingdom in some generic sense it's almost like a, just another adjective, like Christian. But, but the words mean nothing, you know. Uh, we're kingdom people with a kingdom recipe. And we're going to do kingdom life together. And it, it has no substance to the words because it's actually not rooted in what Jesus was talking about, what Jesus inaugurated, what Jesus lived out, right? It's disconnected from those things. And so how? what does it mean for us when we, when we can't, Automatically connect the church with the kingdom of God because of the history and current realities that, that are so visible in our society. I remember um, this was a few years ago, I was um, connecting with a, a pastor that was pretty popular, like a well known pastor who happened to be in town. Um, at a particular time, and and we were going to get together and just you know connect and share stories or whatever, and and it was after the end of a conference. And so when the time came, he mentioned to me, he's like, oh yeah, there's going to be just a few other people that are going to be there with us. I was like, okay, that's fine, you know. Um, so we get there, we drive off, and we're at this place, um, and and we get into the restaurant and. Uh, we come to the table and it's just like 15 people sitting around and I'm like, this is not just a couple other people, you know, I was hoping to connect with the guy and now I'm here with like, it's a, it was like this church's like whole team, like their leadership, it was a mega church from the area and like their whole team was there, everybody. I'm like, okay, this is gonna be a little bit different than what I was anticipating, but all right, let's see how this goes. And so they began talking and and they had some business that they wanted to talk about. And and it was a little bit, I won't lie, like it was one of the most disorienting conversations I've heard as it relates to Christians, Christian leaders, especially sitting around the table talking. because they were talking about how the church was going to, in a few months, be launching the change of their name to the new brand, which was after the, the pastor who was in town, they were taking on the brand of that church's name, um, but, but for their region, and that they were also then gonna be rolling out the branding to like, there's some other newer, smaller churches that they kind of like took over almost and brought in into their thing. And so they're gonna be rolling out, trying to figure out how they're gonna do the alignments of the branding for all stuff. And I was just disoriented by the whole conversation. And I was thinking like, you know, I could have just as easily been sitting around the table with CEOs from multinational corporations. I was like, what in the world? Like the logics of all of this. I mean, it's fine to be strategic at times. I'm not knocking strategy and all, but I would just, you know, sometimes we've just so often uh, succumbed to the logics, uh, the mainstream logics and dominant logics of our society and have lost anything distinctly Christian, Jesus-shaped, that, that has an imagination of the reign of God because we're just so consumed by the logics of our society. I remember I had a friend once who, um, I always remembered it after he said it just one time, he said, churches, they're all about the ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash. And I was like, oh, oh, jeez. And of course, you know, of course we can all say, all right, I know some churches that aren't, all right, and we can find the exceptions to the rule, but but I got his point really quickly, right? That, that what is the thing that we're driving, that we're driving after, that we're seeking first? What consumes us? What are we worried about? What do we put all our energy towards, right? And I think sometimes we can get so consumed by these logics, um, the logics of our broader society, that we fail to literally seek after the kingdom of God in any kind of meaningful and tangible way. Um, but of course, you know, that's just... One small little thing. I mean, if you think about the history of the church, I mean, I can, I'll can. i give you... It's hard for me to do because... So my minor area of my dissertation was actually historical theology. So I'm going to butcher history for a second um, against all instincts. But just for the, for the sake of getting a sense of Christian history... The first three centuries of the church, the church was a minority, more, you know, lots of women and slaves were part of the church. It was not mainstream by any regard. By around 300 AD, I think you have like, about 25% of the population in the East is Christian and about 10% in the West is Christian. Still minorities, right? After 300 years, um, certainly growing and growing fast, but, but minorities nonetheless. Um, And they went through periodic waves of persecution all through that. And then Constantine came, um, and this is maybe the crude oversimplification, but but pre-Constantine you have this marginalized church, after Constantine you have this ongoing merging of the church and the social order. Right? Um, so within 100 years after Constantine, he helps, he privileges the church, the bishops let him in, they let him sit in and oversee the Nicene Council, everything. I mean, it's just a mess. And, and then within 100 years, right, within 100 years, Theodosius, he actually makes Christianity the official. Uh, a religion of the empire, and by a thousand years, you know, we're on our crusades, right? And you can't tell the difference between if it's an imperial war or a Christian war, because it's all one and the same thing. They've all been conflated together, and people can't distinguish the one from the other. Move on another several centuries, right, and we have Christians who can't, who so think of their own society and civilization as Christian that Western Christianity is conflated again, uh, Western society is conflated as Christian, right, and so when when people are encountering people in what they call the New worlds right and going to Africa and Latin America and Asia and they 're saying we 're going to bring you Jesus, but they couldn 't decipher between Western civilization and Christianity, and so they say hey we 're going to give you jesus we 're going to put you through a conversion, all things die, all things become new, and they have to cut their hair, change their names, change their clothes, cut themselves off from their customs and their people. All things die, all things become new, but what image are they being fashioned after? Whose image, who are they becoming more like? One of the saddest portions of that story is that even Jesus had to undergo conversion in this new paradigm. Once a Palestinian Jew, all things die, all things become new. He comes out as a Western European representing the best of the West. The church for centuries has perpetuated white supremacy, patriarchy, class exploitation. And and sometimes we like to think of it as like we got drug along with it. No, we were its primary agents and instigators often. During the colonial period, instead of the church being the presence of Jesus where God reigns It was often a force of destruction in which indigenous people's worlds, customs, lives, and land were turned upside down and not upside down in like the upside down kingdom kind of way, right? I'm talking about upside down in the kind of imperial monster crushing everything in its path kind of way where things will never be the same, where you can never go back to what once was. Now you know I could tell story. Normally I would be telling story, personal stories of U.S. racism and how horrific it is, police brutality, mass incarceration. You know, 400 year, years of black suffering, and I'm sure Canadians probably know that better than the U.S. um, in terms of some of those things. But my concern is, and I wonder sometimes, you know, it's it's easy. I'm sure it can get very comfortable to look down south and be like, yo. They are a hot mess. Who in the world would vote Trump into office? And look at that racism. It's clearly they're just a mess. It's easy to kind of look there and see how horrific US racism is. But what happens, do you look in the mirror, right? Like what happens when we begin to realize that Canadian history is very similar to US history, right? Very similar. Yes, you don't have the exact same story as it relates to the black lived experience in terms of slavery and Jim Crow and all that. But in terms of Native American First Nations people, right, the indigenous of the land, it's exactly identical. The heart of this posture of, of, of believing that the land is ours for the taking, displacing and erasing the indigenous communities here. This is a part of the legacy of the church. The church has been patterned by the dominant logics of society um, and sometimes creating the dominant logics of society, um, rarely offering distinct and Jesus-shaped ways of life to the world. So what, what does it look like then for the reign of God to be made manifest in a world fashioned after white supremacy and colonialism. What does it actually look like? Can we actually, is there an example? I say, yes, there is. So I, I, I think about my ancestors, I think about in the 1800s and, and, and I, can, I, I can see my ancestors there, they're, they're there after maybe a long day's work picking cotton and they're there in the slave quarters And they're not allowed to read or write. They're not even allowed to worship God as they like. And they're told that God sanctions slavery and made them inferior. And they're told to accept this Jesus that says just passively accept and in the by and by, you'll get your reward. But they would steal away. They would steal away to the brush arbors and they would gather together outside of the watchful eye they would do all kinds of creative things to try to limit and control the sound so it wouldn't get too loud all kinds of stuff and they would worship god freely and they encountered even though most of them were illiterate and couldn't even read the bible themselves because it was illegal they encountered a different god a different jesus not one that endorses their slavery but they they found and discovered and encountered and experienced a liberating God, and a God that was a co-sufferer and a friend in hard times. And this God shaped them, and they began to create these these radical communities, even though literally families broken apart one after the other, and yet they created these new kinship networks of families that lived co-independently, trusting and relying on one another in the midst of white supremacist slavery in the US, right? I'd say that's a sign of God's reign on earth. I'm, I'm also a student um, of the Anabaptist tradition as I mentioned all, er, earlier and, and I'm, I'm always intrigued by the 16th century Anabaptists who, I mean they break away from the church state social order um, and they do so and they want to try to follow Jesus' teachings um, and they begin to create, you know, radical communities of mutual sharing. Some of them literally, like the Hutterites, literally they have communities where literally no one holds any possessions at all. Um, Just radical, right? Um, Not all of them were doing that, but all of them in some way or form were creating on the grounds, real life, from the underside, radical communities of giving, receiving, and sharing, new ways of relating, understanding that they needed to speak truth to show forgiveness, to love one another, to love one's enemies, right? A new way of embodying the way of Jesus, embodying um, what Jesus uh, modeled for us. When the church seeks first the kingdom, it discovers uh, the New Testament vision of a community with radically reconfigured belonging, where the least, the last, and lost are prioritized and centralized and where all social hierarchies that don't recognize the inherent dignity of all people is crushed. The kingdom of God could be understood in some ways, like I think of Matthew 20 uh, was it like 20 to 28, where the mama Zebedee and her boys come when they sit at the right and left, right? Um, and Jesus, you know, drink the cup, you know, drink the cup. They think they know, they don't know, all right? And then the other, the 10 are upset and, um, and then Jesus gathers them all together and he says, the Gentiles loaded over you, but not so among you, right? This is the anti kingdom kingdom that is the kingdom of god that that rejects kingdom way of life the logics of the kingdom don't operate in the kingdom because it's a flattened social hierarchy there is no lording over others there's no position and dominance lording it as the gentiles do this is a different way not so among you when the reign of God is actually manifesting, those hierarchies, those socially, humanly constructed hierarchies are crushed, right? That's what happens when the church seeks first the kingdom of God. The church that seeks first the kingdom of God is the community that gathers around Jesus as Lord and undergoes a revolution in its social relations. In Jesus' words, the first are last and the last are first. The kingdom of God doesn't operate by the logics of mainstream society. Those on the margins of society are given the main stage of God's mission. It is the poor, the oppressed, the foreigner, the widow, right, that are prioritizing God's kingdom. It's, It's interesting that in Luke, right, that it's Caesar that actually misses out on what God is up to. The new thing that God is up to, Caesar misses out on, but not the shepherds, right? Not the poor, the vulnerable women, the ethnic outcasts, the lepers. They become divine signs of the radically new thing that God is doing. And so I guess, you know, the question that we might have is now is, well, how do we opt in? How do we opt in? What's our entry point? Um, And the good news is that The kingdom of God is a right now from down below grassroots movement in the spirit, in the spirit of Christ leading towards justice, holistic deliverance and ultimately shalom, right? It's available to us right now. Like right now, immediately, it's an opportunity. It's, it's, It's a possibility right now. Like we can begin to operate, repent and turn towards the kingdom right now, and and it is an on-the-ground response, like like we can begin from below the social order, from within the social order, we can actually respond um, and participate in this new thing that God is doing. We're actually invited into that. That's what God wants, that's what God is calling us to. He's saying, please, opt in. Be a part of this new thing that God is doing. Don't stand on the sidelines. Opt in. Throughout the world, yes, there's mass poverty and oppression. People are sick, alienated, taken advantage of, harmed in so many ways, right? I mean, honestly, in the US, I just, I'm always baffled by just the degree to how much our society is organized and I would say even engineered uh, to create inequities, right? So that people, vulnerable people, are being crushed and harmed in all sorts of ways. Um, and yet, you know, with that, we, we have to wrestle and say, where is God? Is God passive to people's suffering? Will God watch quietly as some Lord over others? But the good news is that Jesus and his kingdom, um, it is an announcement that God has not abandoned us. It is a message that God is intervening on our behalf. It is a word of hope that encourages us to, to walk with God because Jesus is present to us through the Spirit And has begun his reign. And though it's not necessarily how we expect it, right? We expect God to operate like we would or like tyrants do. And God is not a tyrant. And so God doesn't operate the way that we would want. And the kingdom doesn't look like what we would expect. But God is here and God is among us. And the spirit of God literally is multiplying the presence of Jesus for us making Jesus available, the presence of Jesus available to us in our community. It's being multiplied and spread out. We have access to the presence. And so, so God is at work through the Spirit moving and making Jesus present in the world. And the Spirit is at work healing and restoring and delivering and encouraging and doing justice, right? And the question is, are we going to participate in what God is doing? One of the strangest things I've noticed... Um, about most people's teachings on the kingdom of God is that it often actually misses the role of the spirit and its relationship to the kingdom. It's actually interesting how we miss that connection. It's so obvious, right? Read the gospel, Luke again, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to bring good news, right? Um, And then what does Jesus do? He goes out and he does the very things that he just said the Spirit is is encouraging to do. It's in all the gospel. The Spirit is sending him out. Sometimes abruptly, it seems, the Spirit is is sending Jesus out into the world to, to embody the reign of God for the world. And then in the book of Acts, we see it again, right? The Spirit comes down. And what's the response after this powerful, intimate encounter with God? radical reorganizing of their community where they're sharing all things in common. And then they go out and they're sent out into the world and they cause a lot of trouble and they're arrested. And that happens a lot, right? The whole book of Acts, half of it is just recidivism of them just going back to jail constantly. (laughs) But, but, but so the radical community go out and get in trouble, and then they come right back, and then they intensify that community response. And, it, and even more so, sharing all things in common. You got Barabbas coming, selling his field and giving it to the people, and having all things being shared in common, right? And it keeps going, and the spirit keeps breaking open this community in ways that they couldn't even expect. First, just between uh, the the Hebrew Jews and the Hellenistic Jews and breaking them open to deal with that controversy. And then then before you know it, it's Jews uh, and Gentiles being broken over and all the different challenges in Acts 15. But it's it's God's, God's desire through the Spirit in the presence of Jesus literally pushing them and moving them to embody the reign of God more and more. And so there's an intimate connection between the Spirit of God, actually not just encountering the Spirit, I'm talking about yielding to the Spirit, right? There's a difference between experiencing the Spirit and yielding to the Spirit so that you're doing and participating in what God is up to, the justice and the healing and the restoration, right? Are we going to yield to the Spirit? We see also this connection in the Gospel of John, John 3, Um, It's one of the few times that in John, where John actually uses the phrase kingdom of God, it actually doesn't show up very often in the Gospel of John. Um, Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke are just kingdom of God everywhere, right? It's pretty clear. You could tell that the teachings still relate to it, but but it doesn't always use that language. But in the Gospel, chapter three, you see Jesus, I think he uses the the phrase two or three times um, in that chapter. But he also talks about the spirit that blows where it will, right? that can't be contained, um, that's gonna move and it's gonna be transforming people. Transforming people, regenerated people who live differently, born, it's, it's a play on words in the Greek, born again and born from above. A different kingdom, right? And fully regenerated, a different way of being in the world and relating to others. And there we can enter in and participate in the kingdom of God Jesus teaches us. There's a strong relationship. Even despite the fact that we've missed the spirit of the kingdom, the, the kingdom has a lot to do with the spirit's work yielding to the spirit, yielding to the spirit. And so um, if we want to opt in, we've got to both follow Jesus, embody the Jesus story, and yield to the spirit of God that empowers us to actually do that. And yield collectively as a community to be the kind of community that God has called us to be. Right? Those things, you, you know, I, I always feel the tension, um, you know, sometimes, you know, just discipleship, follow Jesus, right? Well, yield to the Spirit. Well, they ought to be leading you to the same place. And if they're not, something is off on one of them, right? They ought to be leading you to the same place, to embodying the reign of God on earth. I'll close with this um, there's a story. Um, of Dr. King when he was fairly young um, in Montgomery. And, you know, he, he kind of got thrust into a position that he neither wanted, <laughs> was looking for, um, and in some ways wasn't even prepared for. Um, and so all of a sudden he's this spokesperson in Montgomery, Alabama, you know, speaking up against the segregation and white supremacy locally. And of course, you know, before he knows it, I I mean, literally, he's 26 while this is happening. And while this is happening, all of a sudden, the death threats start coming in. The death threats, just constant, just haunting, terrorizing him, terrorizing his wife, Coretta. They just haunted, can't get comfortable. Um, And his dad, I mean... King came from, like, he has, like, a a legacy of, like, pastors from Atlanta. And so his dad's like, yo, you need to come back to Atlanta. Don't stay down in in Alabama. It's not safe. This is not a good look. This is very dangerous what you're into. And so one night he records talking about um, feeling agitated, and then another phone call comes, and someone calls him the N-word and threatens him and tells him to get out of town like right away or you'll regret it. Threatening to harm his family. He gets up, agitated, uncomfortable, can't sleep. It's midnight, goes into the kitchen, makes himself a cup of coffee, sits over the cup of coffee, starts praying, says that really begins to encounter God in, for the first time in a way that he had never before. Before it was really his parents' faith and yeah, it was his tradition and stuff, but, but now he had to lean in in a different kind of way now. And he heard God speak to him. And God let him know that he won't leave him alone, that he's present with him. He's not going anywhere. He will never leave him nor forsake him. And then out of that, then he told him, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, stand up for righteousness. And King remembers this moment of encountering God and then yielding to God, trusting in God and participating in the thing that God was doing among him and in his community. Three days later, I think it was, his house is bombed Um, While his wife and his young child were actually in the house, but they were thankfully spared. But even after that, he was at that point now already committed. He wasn't going anywhere. He was going to trust in God. He was going to follow Jesus. He was going to link arms with the believers. He was going to participate in what God was doing no matter what. And so, my invitation for all of us is that we would all have our midnight cup of coffee experience, right? Um, Have that midnight experience and actually have an intimate encounter with God. Have our midnight uh, experience and, and actually be transformed. Have our midnight experience and accept the call to follow Jesus. Have our midnight experience and actually yield to the spirit of God. Have our midnight experience and do justice and to speak truth and to love our neighbors, and to provide forgiveness for others, and to, and to, to, to liberate the oppressed, and let, uh, and to let jubilee be manifested in our world, to have that midnight experience so that we can seek first the kingdom of God and see it actually made visible for our neighbors and for our communities so that they would know that God reigns. God bless.